we're in a series, if you're new to our church, we're in a series that's called uh, New Marriage, Same Spouse. And um, today and next week, we are going to be talking about what is uh, undoubtedly one of the most controversial and um, complicated topics that we're going to be talking about through this series, and that is the unique roles that God has assigned uh, to men and women in marriage. And I want you to know that it is absolutely no coincidence uh, uh, that I chose to speak on those topics when a lot of people would be gone um, <laughs> for spring break. Uh, just want to dive right in to this passage uh, this morning. If you would, take your Bibles and turn with me in them to Ephesians chapter 5. And this passage that we're focusing on in this series is really, it's the most complete passage on marriage in all of the Bible. And I keep reminding you, it's important for you to remember this, important for you to hear this, that marriage is not anthropological. It doesn't, marriage isn't, isn't something that man thought up. Uh, marriage is theological uh, in its origins. It's something that God designed. And so we want to understand exactly how God designed this. And uh, those of you who are joining us by our podcast, we're glad that you're joining us. I just... Uh, while you're taking, uh, while you turn to Ephesians chapter 5, I just want to take a moment and I want to review where we've been so far in this series. First of all, we've said in this series that the power for marriage is the Holy Spirit. That re- I mean, it doesn't matter what kind of marriage you're in, the power for marriage is the Holy Spirit. Uh, that's how God designed it. And if two people have not responded to Jesus Christ and are married, they just don't have the power of the Holy Spirit in their marriage. That doesn't mean they can't have a, a good marriage. It just can't ever be quite what a marriage could be with the power of the Holy Spirit working in it. The main problem in marriage is self-centeredness. That's always the problem behind anything. I mean, if you look behind any problem in your marriage, you're always going to find it self-centeredness. The definition of marriage, we have said, is commitment. You can't fall in and out of love with someone. Now, you can fall in and out of like, and you will fall in and out of like from time to time. But you can't fall in and out of love, because love is a commitment to a person that 10 years, 20 years, 30 years, 50 years down the road, I'm going to be there for you, regardless of what I feel. Okay? So the commitment of mar- uh, the, the, the definition of marriage is commitment. The priority of marriage is that there is no relationship that is to be more important than your marriage. And then last week we talked about the purpose of marriage, and we said that the purpose of marriage is friendship. Now, what I want to do today is I want to read, once again, we're going to go back, we're going to read the whole passage from uh, verse 21 down to verse 33. Uh, Chapter 5, verse 21 through verse 33. Let's read uh, this passage again together. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Wives, submit to your husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church, his body of which he is the Savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to their husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives, just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word and to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. In In this same way, husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. After all, no one ever hated his own body, but he feeds and cares for it, just as Christ does the church, for we are members of his body. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. This is a profound mystery, but I am talking about Christ and the church. However, each one of you also must love his wife as he loves himself. And the wife must respect her husband. 
I want to ask for a show, show of hands here, and I hope that you won't be embarrassed to raise your hand because there's no judgment in this question at all. It really is kind of a factual question. I just want to, want to ask you, how many of you uh, think or would, th- would think that Christianity is more closely aligned with, more closely associated with uh, conservative ideology and thought rather than liberal ideology and thought? How many of you, just raise your hands if you think that would be the case. Thank you. It, it is funny to me uh, how here in America, the overwhelming uh, view of Christianity is that it is more closely aligned with conservative thought than liberal thought. On the other hand, here's the interesting thing. If I were to ask you that very same question, if I were to ask a group of people in communist China that very same question, where freedom is severely limited by an extremely conservative state that claims that the government is the final arbiter of right and wrong, most people would associate Christianity with liberalism. Because you see, in communist China, Christianity is fighting a different, a different idea, the idea that government is the final arbiter of right and wrong. And Christianity would say, no, not government. God is always the final arbiter of right and wrong. That's why uh, communism has always eyed Christianity with suspicion, and it has even oppressed and, uh, and even martyred uh, Christians throughout history. Here in America, though, Christianity appears very conservative and reactionary. Why? Well, it's because in America, as I said a moment ago, we confront a completely different idea. In communist China, the uh, idea is that the government is the arbiter of right and wrong. But in Christi- it, excuse me, in America, the idea here, yes, exactly, that the individual is the final arbiter of right and wrong, right? Isn't that what it is? Like everyone ought to be able to determine right and wrong for himself. That's what we say here in America. Everybody, truth is relative. It's relative to every individual person. And so every person ought to be able to determine right and wrong for themselves. And Christianity always says, nope. It's not the individual. It's always God. He's the one who is the absolute and final word on what is wrong and what is right. Now, the point is that, here's my point. Christianity looks, uh, it looks left wing to the right wing, and it looks right wing to the left wing. And that's really the way that it ought to be because Christianity doesn't originate from humanity. Uh, it originates with God. And so it doesn't really fit any ideology. And consequently, every ideology is going to be suspicious of Christianity at some point, right? If you try to associate Christianity with either the the right or the left, with either conservative traditional values or with radical liberalism, you will always be disappointed because Christian does not arise out out of either a human context. Christianity comes down from heaven to humanity. It doesn't come up from humanity. And I mention that because as we look at this passage today, and specifically this issue of the roles that men and women play, are designed to play in marriage, this passage is the most underappreciated passage, one of the most underappreciated passages in Scripture for its sophistication. And it is one of the most maligned passages of Scripture, because people are forever trying to approach this passage from their own cultural biases. Now, let's face it. Um, I mean, let's, let's not equivocate over this. If you look at this passage from a modern or postmodern American individualistic 
point of view, the command for wives to submit to their husbands because their husbands are the head of their wives, uh, that feels extremely traditional and conservative and sexist, and some would even say Neanderthal, right? On the other hand, I will tell you that if you were to read this passage along with some of the other passages in the New Testament in which Paul speaks about women, if you were to read those passages in the context of the ancient Near East in which this passage was written, or even in the modern Middle East, Paul would seem radically countercultural to you. And, and he would be seen as uh, subversive to established traditions. And what I want you to see today, as, as we begin today, and, and we're going to continue next week, but as, as we begin today to talk about the roles that men and women play, I want you to see um, just how sophisticated and nuanced uh, this passage of Scripture really is. Okay? Um, and to do that, you're going to have to put away your cultural biases. In fact, you're going to have to try as best you can to separate yourself from a modern or postmodern American individualistic point of view. And you're going to have to try to hear this without that bias. All right? Now, I want to focus on four things that this passage teaches us. And here are those four things. I'll, I'll say them, and then I'll say them quickly, and then I'll come back to them in just a little bit. Okay? Here's the first one, uh, is that there are differences between men and women. The second one is that, there, that these differences between men and women originate in the creation. The third one is that the differences uh, between men and women have been distorted by the fall. And then the fourth one is that Christ is the only one who can heal those distortions. All right? Now, let's start with this one, the, the first one again. There are differences between men and women. Now, you no doubt noticed as you read this text uh, that this text says some very different things to men and to women. Uh, for instance, it says, it says, men, love your wives, right? But in the last verse, in verse 33, it says, uh, it says, wives, respect your husbands. So men love, but wives respect. And then in verse 21, it says, both men and women are to submit to each other. But then verse 22 comes back again, and it says, it, it, again, it says, wives, submit to your husband. So if you're counting, and I know some of you are counting, uh, that's two times, it says, for women to submit, and only one time for men to submit. And then there's no place in this text that it says that a wife ought to be working for her husband's holiness, but it spends quite a bit of time in this passage, instructing men that that's your job, is to love your wives and to make sure that you are doing everything you can to help her grow in holiness. But it doesn't say anything about that to women. Now, does that mean that wives are not supposed to love their husbands or that they're not supposed to work for their husband's holiness? And does it mean that husbands are not supposed to respect their wives? Is that what it means? No, of course not, because there are plenty of other places in Scripture where those things are brought out. So why does God lay out different instructions here for men and women? Well, the answer, quite simply, is that he emphasizes different things with each, with men and women, because both have different gifts, and they play different roles in the marriage. Now, I want you to be very careful when I talk about that. When I say that there are different roles for men and women in marriage, I want you to be very careful, especially those of you who would identify yourselves as conservatives, because I'll tell you something, conservative churches easily accept this idea that there are different roles for men and women, but conservative churches have a tendency 
in those circles, they have a tendency to push toward unbiblical stereotypes of those roles in which the man is supposed to go out and do the work and the woman is supposed to stay home and cook and clean and and, uh, have babies and then take care of those children. And all of that's done in the name of traditional family values. The problem is the Bible doesn't teach that. The Bible only lays out these roles in very general terms. It doesn't, it, doesn't, it doesn't teach that, that men are supposed to go out and work and women are supposed to stay home. It does not say that. And in addition to that, the Bible doesn't align itself with what many people today would think of when they think of the traditional family. Do you realize that it's only been a very short period of time uh, in the industrial age that men actually left home uh, to go to work and women stayed home. Do you realize it's only been a very short period of time in the industrial age where that's happened? Because prior to the industrial age, in the pre-industrial age, husbands and wives both stayed home, and husbands and wives both also produced goods together. They worked together. In fact, the whole family worked together in whatever was the job of the family. I mean, if, it, if they farmed together, if they were tailors, they tailored together as a family. Uh, if they were shoemakers, they, they, made, you know, they, they worked on shoes together. Both the husband and the wife produced goods, and both the husband and the wife raised the children. They did it together. And so when someone talks about the traditional family, I, I, I always wonder, what... Which traditional family are you talking about? Are you talking about the traditional family between, say, roughly 1880 and 1960 in the industrial age? Or are you talking about the pre-industrial traditional family? Which are you talking about? Yes, the Bible teaches that men and women have different strengths and different gifts and different roles. But the Bible doesn't wed itself to any kind of traditional family. So what I'm trying to say to you is don't be too quick. Those of you who would identify yourselves as conservatives, don't be too quick to assume that you know uh, what those roles are on the basis of what you've always been taught or the conservative circles that you may have run in. Okay? So there are differences between men and women. Okay? I want you to see, too, though, besides just the fact that there are differences between men and women, and, of course, you understand that there are differences biologically, but I want you to understand that, you know, those differences go beyond biology. I want you to understand that these differences between men and women find their origin in creation. That's the second point I want to make today, that they find their origin in creation. Now, this is a very important point because people often want to accuse Paul, when they come to this passage, they often want to accuse him of being uh, conservative and patriarchal and chauvinistic. But again, that's often because people want to see this passage as arising out of a human context rather than seeing this passage as eternal truth that's descending from God above. Now, I want you to notice uh, when Paul says in verse 22, when he says, he says, wives, submit to you. That, that is such a hard verse to read in this culture. I mean, even for me to read it, I feel the tension up here. Even as I'm, as I'm reading the verse, I, I feel the tension. Uh, and I, I want you to understand, I mean, I do. I, I personally feel it, because it does. It sounds so conservative and so traditional and so Neanderthal as I read it. But it says, wives, submit to your husbands as to the Lord, for the husband is, and I want you to circle that word, the next word in the, in the passage. I want you to circle the word head. It says, wives, submit to your husbands as to the Lord, for the husband is the head of the wife. Whether you realize it or not, Paul is taking us back to the creation account 
in the book of Genesis. Now, I say that because I want you to understand that Paul isn't, isn't giving us his opinions on men and women. He is rooting all of this back in the creation and the order and the way that God created Adam and Eve when he uses that word head. The Greek word head uh, is just like our word um, authority. So it has both a primary and a secondary meaning. The primary meaning is source. Think about it. You know, like if I'm the if I'm the author of a book, I'm the source of that book. Am I not? I mean, I wrote it. It came from me. I'm the source of it. I have authority over it. I can tell you what the book means because I wrote it. Adam was the head over Eve in that he was her source. Do you remember the book of Genesis? You remember how this goes in the book of Genesis? Uh, God did the creating, but he did it through Adam. You remember that? How did he create Eve? Took her. He created her from one of Adam's bones, one of his ribs. Okay? And so in that sense, Adam was uh, her source. In that sense, he's the head over Eve. Now, there's a, second, a secondary meaning of that, of that word uh, head, and the secondary meaning is power or influence, uh, or sway. Power, influence, or sway. So if you go back to the creation account, again, you will notice that God assigned uh, different tasks to Adam and Eve. To Adam, he assigned the task of naming. He was to be the namer of all creation. Do you remember that? God told him, he said, I want you to name all of the animals uh, on, the, on the earth. Now, why did God ask him to do that? Was it because God didn't want to do it? Is it because he didn't have time? Is it because he was, he was bored? He's a big picture God. He didn't want to deal with the details. What, 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 what was it? Why did he have uh, Adam do it? Well, the reason that he had Adam do it is because uh, God was delegating authority over the creation to Adam. To name someone means that you are taking responsibility for that person, that you're responsible to care for that person and to shape that person or that thing. And so God delegated his authority to Adam. He said, he said, you be the namer, you be the authority over the creation that I have created. I'm giving it to you. You're going to be the steward over it. You are the ultimate accountable uh, person over this creation. And if you remember, when God presented, Adam to, uh, presented Eve to Adam, what did Adam do? He named her. He named her. Okay? Eve, for her part... So Adam was to be a namer of all creation. Eve, for her part, was to be, the Bible says that she was to be a helper uh, for Adam. Now, I realize, again, that word helper, it sounds very demeaning in a way, doesn't it? But that's not the Bible's intention. And you know how we know it's not the Bible's intention to be demeaning to women when it calls them a helper? Because the Holy Spirit in the Scriptures is also called helper. The Holy Spirit is part of the Godhead, so it couldn't in any way, shape, or form, the Bible couldn't in any way, shape, or form be trying to be demeaning to women when it refers to them as a helper. Actually, the word helper is a very sophisticated term. A helper, biblically, is a person who brings power and resources that the helpee doesn't have. And so the idea here is that God has created Eve in such a way that she has resources and powers that Adam doesn't have to fulfill his role as the steward over creation and that Adam desperately needs. 
Adam's given from God. He's given him the ultimate responsibility to care for his creation. But he's also, God has also given Adam someone who has resources and talents and abilities and gifts and a way of looking at life and a way of thinking that Adam doesn't have, that he desperately needs. And God has given this person to Adam to help him. But make no mistake, Adam is the one who is accountable for it all. How things go in this world is going to be Adam's responsibility. And then, as soon as all of this happens, as soon as all of these assignments have been given, in Genesis 3, something terrible happens. Satan tempts Eve to do that which God had commanded Adam not to do, to eat from the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And Eve eats. Adam, like every guy since Adam, when God confronts him with it, Adam says it was her fault, tries to blame it on her, but he can't blame it on her because Adam is the ultimate accountability, has ultimate accountability for how things go on this planet. Not Eve. Adam does. And in that moment that Eve ate from the tree, both Adam and Eve, because of Adam's failure, were corrupted in what theologians often refer to as the fall of humanity. And that leads to the third point that I want you to get here, and that is the, the differences between men and women. Yes, Adam was the head. Yes, Adam is the head. He's the, he's the source. He has, he has ultimate accountability from God. Yes. But the differences between men and women have been distorted by this moment called the fall of humanity. And it's incredibly enlightening to see how both Adam and Eve were uniquely distorted as a result of the fall. God tells Adam this. Guys, see if this sounds familiar to you. God tells Adam, he says, he says, as a result of this thing that you have allowed to happen, Adam, as a result, you are going to sweat and work in the dust of the ground, but thorns and thistles are going to come up. Now, this, guys, that's not just like a, uh, a thing for farmers. That is for all of us, every, every one of us. What he's saying is, Adam, as a result of this, what's going to happen is that the significance and the joy and the sense of fulfillment and impact that I created uh, man to feel from work, it's going to be forever unattainable for, for you. Uh, there are going to be moments of joy in your work, but it is going to be a constant frustration, and frankly, it's going to become an idol for you. That's what he was saying. That sound simple? Does that sound familiar, guys? And so with Adam, God says, your work is going to be, it's going to be cursed. But what's interesting is that when it comes to Eve, God says to her, here's, here's the effect of the fall on you, Eve. And in this, he's speaking to all women. When he speaks to her, he doesn't speak to her about work. He speaks to her about 
her relationships, specifically her relationships with men, and more specifically, her relationship with her husband. And he tells her that the fall is going to distort her relationships with men and with her husband. He says, he says this, he says to her, he says, in Genesis chapter 3, he says, your desire will be for your husband, and he will rule over you. And right there is such an important teaching. Because what he's saying there is that something in her relationship with men is going to be distorted. She's going to have, she and all of her descendants are going to have a longing, a deep longing that is, uh, it's like an overlonging for a man in her life. So much so that even as a little girl, She's going to, she'll start dreaming, even as a little girl, about this guy that she's going to marry and this Prince Charming that's going to come into her life. But he says, your husband will rule over you. That's not a compliment, by the way, and that's not a command for men. What he's saying is that, in a sense, he's going to become an idol for her. She's going to over-need him. She's going to look to him for her security and for her significance. And guess what? Because he's fallen and because he's warped, he's going to realize the power that he has over her, the power that she's actually giving him. And he's going to use that power in a sinful and broken way. He will become like a tyrant over her. He will rule over her in an oppressive and authoritarian and demeaning way. And this, by the way, Genesis chapter 3, is the reason for the distorted relationship between men and women throughout history. A few years ago, there was a book that was written, a fascinating book. It was called Half the Sky. I don't know if you read that book, but it, was, it, it documented all of the horrible abuses of women that exist, even in the modern world all over the planet. Half the sky was the name of it. And Genesis 3 gives us the psychology behind that. Remember, we've all, we always say uh, about the Scriptures that we, we always say that good psychology is good theology made personal. Genesis 3 gives us an answer for why there are these horrible distortions between men and women. When masculinity and femininity go bad, Men become tyrannical and demeaning and authoritarian and abusive, sometimes physically abusive, sometimes emotionally abusive. And women, for their part, become overly dependent. And frankly, I'm going to use a word here that uh, may be objectionable to some of you, but frankly, women, not only do do you become overly dependent, but you also become masochistic. And let me explain what I mean by that. Why else does a woman continue to go back to a man who beats her over and over and over again? I have, uh, over the years, seen this time and time again, where a woman goes back to a man who beats her physically. Once, in fact, once I, I, I uh, had a woman in, in my church whose husband had actually they were in an argument. He actually put a gun to her head, and he threatened her. Now, it turned out that the gun was unloaded. I told her, I said, you need to get out. She spent an hour in my office one time telling me that the unloaded gun was proof that he loved her. And I felt sorry for her. He was, he was, he was wrong, but she was masochistic in returning to that. 
When femininity goes wrong, when masculinity goes wrong, it becomes tyrannical and authoritative and demeaning and abusive. When femininity goes wrong, it becomes overly dependent, needy, and sometimes masochistic. Ladies, why else? Why else? Especially young ladies, I want to say this. Why else would you disgrace yourself and take nude selfies and send them to your boyfriend? Can I tell you something, ladies? That's not sexy. It's needy. It's needy. And guys love it, sure. I mean, they love it, but, you know, in part, because, you know, the, you know, they, part, you know the, the sexuality of it, guys love. But I'm going to tell you something. that guys love it in part because it signals that he has power over you, and you are so desperate for him that you will do whatever he wants, even undermining your own dignity for him. Why? Because you're desperate, and he's an oppressive tyrant. That's what happens when masculinity goes wrong and when femininity goes wrong. And so these differences between men and women, while they, while they are very real and they find their origin in creation, they are also distorted by the fall of humanity. And then there's this fourth point, and, and I, I'm feeling in this moment, I feel like we need this fourth point so badly. Because right now it just kind of feels hopeless, doesn't it? We need this fourth point. And this fourth point is that Christ is the only one who can heal these distortions between men and women. He's the only one. Now, I want you to think about this with me for just a moment. I want you to think about some of the ways that the world would say, well, let's try to, let's try to find a solution to these distortions between men and women without having to use Christ. Let me give you some examples. The first one would be traditionalism. Listen to this. Traditionalism. And I want you to think, when we think about traditionalism, I want you to think Islam, or I want you to think even about extremely conservative Christianity. What traditionalism says is that, yeah, Men need to get back to ruling over their wives and taking charge of their families. That'll solve it. Well, the problem with that is that traditionalism doesn't recognize that left to themselves, men will become abusive tyrants and women will tend to allow it by by becoming overly dependent and masochistic. And so traditionalism doesn't solve the problem. Second way, let me give you another way that the world tries to solve this without Christ. Uh, homosexuality. Uh, homosexuality. What homosexuality does is it attempts to resolve uh, the distortions by turning men into women and often women into men. What, it, what it's trying to do is trying to res- reverse the distortions of the fall by reversing the roles that men and women were designed for. But I want you to notice that by reversing the roles, you really don't resolve anything because one person is still dominating the other person. So it really doesn't work. Another way that uh, the world has tried to solve this distortion issue between men and women is through feminism. And feminism, frankly, takes a very similar approach to homosexuality. Feminism says the problem is that men are ruling the world. Men need to stop ruling the world, and women need to start ruling the world. But again, notice that someone is still dominating the other person. And, it, and, and feminism denies the unique roles that men and women were created to play. So it really doesn't solve anything. And then another way, very closely related to feminism, is uh, 
But by the way, let me, let me go back. I, w- I want to just say one more thing about feminism. You know, this, this whole thing about, um, you know, having, having men stop ruling the world and having women start ruling the world. I want to tell you something. This is why you get guys, this is why you get guys, ladies, who can't make a commitment to anything. Because they've been so saturated by the idea of feminism. This is why you get guys who can't pick up a phone and ask you out on a date. This is why you get guys who text you news that you're breaking up. Because they have been conditioned by a culture that says you shouldn't be a man. Um, Be more feminine. I'm not arguing that there's not some good, good dimension for men to be, have some feminine traits, but I'm just saying that the culture has said, it said is, you, you don't be men anymore. This is why you get that. And by the way, women, um, this is why you have to act like a man in the workplace to succeed, the, the whole feminism thing. Do you realize, women, that, that the workplace, because it's not a Christian uh, environment, it's a place where these distortions between men and women uh, are not healed. In fact, not only are they not healed, they are institutionalized. And in order to succeed, you have to be pressed out of your femininity and be made to act masculine to succeed. You realize that? Feminism would say, the workplace, that's going to be your savior. Well, it's not. The workplace is just a very masculine place where in order, if, in order for you to succeed, you got to go be more like a man and less like a woman. And closely related to, to feminism is this idea of egalitarianism, which says well, everybody's equal. It, it, attempts to, it attempts to solve the distortions between men and women by forgetting that there are real distinctions between men and women that God designed. Egalitarianism would say, well, you know, you're just, you're just equal and you both do all the same things. Uh, it's a very modern idea, but not a good one because it doesn't honor the, the differences between men and women. Now, those are all the, women, the world's solutions, but I want you to understand that all of those solutions fall short either because, I, for one of two reasons, they, they, they fall short because uh, either, one, they ignore the original roles that God designed men and women to play, or two, they leave the distortion in place, and they just reverse the roles. They reverse who's dominating and who's getting dominated. So none of them work. I want you to notice how sophisticated and how nuanced Paul's approach, though, is here in this text. In verse 22, notice this. He says, wives, submit to your husbands. But notice what he says. As you do to the Lord. And then he comes along and he says, husbands, love your wives. But notice what he says. As Christ loves the church. In other words, sacrificially, like a servant, selflessly. You see what Paul is doing here? Is that he's pointing both men and women to Christ's sacrificial love as the only way to heal these distortions. Christ, you see, not traditionalism, not homosexuality, not 
feminism, not egalitarianism. Christ is the Messiah. Christ is the Savior of the world. He was the one who was sent into the world for the purpose of reversing fallenness in every way that it manifests itself in in the human race, including the distorted relationships that exist between men and women. Christ was to be the Savior of the world. He is the one that can heal all of that. And Paul points both men and women to Christ, and, and he does so. This is important. Understand this, he does so without ever losing the distinctive roles that God gave them in the first place. Yes, women. Yes. Your husband is the head of you in the sense that women exist because Eve existed because he was, uh, she was taken from Adam's rib. And Adam was given ultimate accountability over creation. Yes, he is the head of you. But Paul says to you, he says, submit to him. But he, he, he doesn't say submit to him in a needy, dependent, masochistic way. Submit to him in the same way, he says, as you do to Christ. And Christ would never have you take a nude selfie and send it. And he would never put a gun to your head. And he would never tell you that you can't work because you're a woman. And he would never tell you you can't have the checkbook because you're a woman. He would never tell you that kind of thing. I want you to listen to this. This is written by a woman uh, by the name of Dorothy Sayers. In fact, I'm going to put it up here. We're going to read it uh, together. Go ahead and put that up there, guys, if you would. She's talking about the unique role that women played in Jesus' life and ministry. And she says, perhaps it's no wonder that women were first at the cradle at the birth of Christ, and last at the cross. They were the last ones to leave him at the cross. They had never known a man like this man. There has never been such another, a prophet and teacher who never nagged them, never flattered or coaxed or patronized, who never made jokes about them, never treated them as the women, God help us, or the ladies, God bless them. He rebuked their querulousness and praised without condescension, who took their questions and arguments seriously, who never mapped out their sphere for them, never urged them to be feminine or jeered at them for being female, who had no axe to grind and no uneasy male dignity to defend, who took them as he found them and was completely unselfconscious. There is no act, no sermon, no parable in the whole gospel that borrows its pungency from female perversity. Nobody could possibly guess from the words of Jesus that there was anything funny about women's nature. Jesus gives, the gospel gives dignity to women. And so, yes, Paul says submit, but in a manner that you would gladly submit to that man that we just read about. And then he says to men, yeah, you are the head of your wives, but not in a domineering and tyrannical and authoritarian and demeaning way. And he, and he says to men, uh, you can read it in verse uh, 25, He says, husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. I know, you know what? I've talked to a lot of guys in counseling, like especially in premarital counseling. And the guys will will say, uh, oh man, I'd I'd take a bullet for her. I'd, I'd die for her. 
And I was like, yeah, I bet that's true. But would you be willing to turn off March Madness to go shopping with her? And I mean that. Would you do that? Would you turn off Monday Night Football to listen to her? That's what it means to give yourself up for her. Would you die to yourself daily for her? Yeah, the big heroic act, I have no question you take a bullet for her, but would you do other sacrificial acts for her? Christ gave himself up for her to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word and to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. That's what Paul says to guys. And you see, in an oppressive, patriarchal, male-dominated, misogynistic culture, can you see how countercultural what Paul is saying was? That's not how they treated women. They didn't love them. They didn't sacrifice for them. They held them down. They kept them in their place. They were mean. They were dominating. They were authoritarian. They were tyrannical to women. Paul says, I want you to do something completely countercultural and completely subversive to establish traditions. Guys, I want you to sacrifice for your wives. I want you to lift them up. I want you to treat them as special and precious. That's what he's saying to them. Men, love your wives, he says, in a caring, sacrificial, honoring, selfless way, the same way that Christ loves the church. Far from trying to oppress women, and further, the patriarchal, oppressive traditionalism, this passage wants to heal the distortions between men and women by preserving their God-given roles and yet at the same time pointing them to the only one who can heal those distortions that exist between men and women. I want to say it this way. and Some of you have been with us from the very beginning. You guys will get this. I want you to hear this. The cross changes everything. Do you see the genius of the cross? Yes, the cross is the way to your personal salvation. It absolutely is. I don't want to minimize that. It is the way for you to get to heaven. Absolutely, that's important. And I, and, and I, I, I want you to get that that's important. But it is far more than that. The cross, the gospel of Jesus Christ, can heal a broken planet. And it can heal the distorted relationships that exist between men and women. It can eradicate sexism and, and, and oppression of women and abuse of women and misogyny and inequality. And one day, Christ is going to return, and he's going to set it all right. But until that day, the church, the church, the people of the cross of Jesus Christ are to be a living, breathing advertisement in the here and now for what that one day in the future will ultimately be like. And so we come back all the way to you, and we say, the cross can heal your marriage. It can. Wives, yes. Submit to your husbands. It's the same way that you would submit to the man that we read about up there. And husbands, love your wives. In the same way that man that we read about loves the church. The cross changes everything. Next week we'll pick this subject of roles up again. We're going to talk about this in more detail because I know I've probably offended half the room today. But, but that's, understand, we'll talk about it more. 
I'd just like to ask you if you would right now to bow your heads and let's pray together. Lord, uh, this is a lot to take in. And it is a very complicated subject. And in our culture, uh, all of this sounds so old school. But Lord, free us um, from the limiting views of just our culture. And enable us to hear this as truth that comes down from heaven, not, not opinion that arises from uh, human beings. Lord, if there are men in the room that uh, need to rethink how they have structured their relationships with their wives and how they treat their wives, I pray that you would give them the courage today to acknowledge that first to you, but also to acknowledge that to their wives and to go to them with humility and to begin to change and to begin to treat them with all the dignity and the love that you have commanded that men treat women with. And Lord, if there are women here, who um, have not been particularly respectful to their husbands in, and they haven't submitted to their husbands in the way that you command them to submit to, to them. I pray that they would have the courage to acknowledge that and um, that they would be able to just own that and perhaps to acknowledge it to their husbands. And Lord, I pray that as we, as, as a church family, interact with these truths, that you would give us the ability to love one another and to love our spouses in a way that brings honor and glory to you. And that we can preserve this important institution that you designed called marriage. And it's in your name, Lord Jesus Christ, that we worship and pray. Amen.